Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp.net, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years, online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Paul Spiteri moderates a panel discussion of Philip Jose Farmer of the Pulps, A Harvest of Influences. The panel features Win Scott Eckert, Jason Aiken, Christopher Paul Carey, and Garen Roberts. The discussion was part of FarmerCon, which was being held in conjunction with PulpFest. It was recorded on August 17, 2019, at PulpFest 2019, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Paul Spiteri begins. Good evening, and welcome to this panel, which we've called Farmer of the Pulps, A Harvest of Influences. And I apologise for the punning, but so please forgive me. I'm Paul Spiteri. I think most people will have seen me here before, so great to see you here, and thank you for joining us this evening. As always, on behalf of the farmer contingent, thank you to everybody in Pulpfest, from the organisers through to the attendees for the warm welcome we always get, and it's, it is really appreciated, so thank you. Mr. Terrell. Um, Thanks for joining us, <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> so, we don't have an awful lot of time, or so I thought. We've now got a little bit more than, um, than we planned, so that's good. So, but keeping to the plan, I'm going to do a quick introduction of people. We're quite a big panel, so I think that will save us a bit of time. And apologies if I'm too brief, but uh, I'm sure you'll correct me. I'll start with Garen Roberts at the, at the end. I'm so honoured to have you on this panel. Thank you. Garen is known, I'm sure, to, to everybody here. He's a consummate expert and professional on the pulps. And you know, it's just great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Christopher Paul Carey um, has recently taken on the post of Director of Publishing at ERB Inc. And I'm sure some of you will have seen his presentation yesterday about the phenomenal project that he's instigating around the ERB universe. We're all excited, I'm sure everybody is, around how that's going to develop. And of course, Chris is a renowned writer in his own right, writer and author. Next, we have Jason Aiken, um, horror and fantasy writer, and um, also the host of Pulp Crazy, a video podcast dedicated to the pulp. Thank you, Jason, and Thanks. welcome. Thanks, Paul. And we have Winscott Eckert, writer and editor of Meteor House, as well as writing authorised stories um, around the Avenger, Zorro, and of course, um, as has just been announced, a Tarzan story for ERB. Congratulations, Will. Okay. In this panel, we're going to talk about how Phil used his what-if muscle um, to take the pulp characters he loved so much and use them as a springboard to create his own stories. And I think he always acknowledged that inspiration. I think that, that came across in many of his writings. So we had a little bit of a discussion before we started. We've got such an illustrious panel um, it made sense to try and split that up. It's such a broad subject. So I'm going to call on people in not any particular order just to talk about what they see as one of the key influences from farmers' work to, you know, from the pulps to farmers' work and perhaps even further than that. 
and I've got a couple myself that I'll finish up with. So when um, I'm going to ask you to, to start, if you can. Thank you. So I've got the easy one here because uh, you know there are metaphorical children of the popes, and then there are literal children of the popes, and so my my answer is easy. Because uh, I write about Patricia Wildman, who's the daughter of Doc Wildman, the Doc Savage analog that, that Phil came up with. Uh, so literally a child uh, of, the, of the pulp heroes. Um, Patricia has appeared in two stories so far, The Evil in Pemberley House, which was co-written with Phil Farmer, and then The Scarlet Jaguar, which I wrote on my own uh, after Phil passed away, but I was given leave to continue the series. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's essentially, you know, she's, she's her, her father's daughter uh, in every sense of the word, just as accomplished, just as intelligent, you know, very physically capable, and goes on the event. Uh, similar types of adventures, and maybe even different types of adventures as the series progresses. Um, it takes place in the 1970s, and I plan to progress it on into at least the 1980s. Uh, so it's still a period piece. Uh, just a different period from what we're accustomed to with traditional uh, pulp heroes. So that's one, you know, influence. Uh, obviously, Phil was, you know, I guess I can use this word, obsessed with Tarzan and, and Doc Savage and, uh, and wrote about both of those characters in many different ways, uh, many ways that were similar uh, and, then, and then ways that diverged. And another uh, child, uh, so to speak, of the pulps that, that Phil um, created were the characters that diverged a little bit more from the Tarzan and Doc Savage, which were the Lord Greneth and Doc Caliban characters uh, who appeared in three books uh, in the very late 1960s and early 1970s. And, and here, Phil takes the opportunity to kind of sort of turn some of the pulp conventions uh, on their ear uh, in a way that, you know, honestly, I'm sure many people in the room are aware, offended some fans and, you know, shocked others uh, and others uh, amused um, and maybe even others titillated, although I actually hope not. Uh, that would. You know. <laughs> Uh, and, and then the second two books that he wrote, he wrote a little bit more straight, but still in this, 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 this different world where they were sort of con contending with a larger, vast global conspiracy. So I think he had a lot of fun with those characters, uh, and we will see Doc Caliban return in 2021. Yeah. That's it. Thank you, and um, We might as well go down the line. Jason, I think you're going to get a little bit of a talk around a particular story? Yeah, I'm going to talk about um, Skinburn. It's a fun little short story that Farmer wrote, of, first appeared in the October 1972 issue of uh, Fantasy and Science Fiction magazine. Uh, it stars Kent Lane, and uh, in the preface, Farmer indicated that um, by his name and the fire opal ring that he has, you should be able to surmise his identity, which, you know, it seems to be implying that he's the son of Ken Allard and Margot Lane. Um, he's working as a contractor to kind of like a man from uncle type of government agency in roughly, you know, 1970s Washington, D.C. And... He just has a lot of weird stuff happening to him. Um, anytime he has any exposure to the sun, he, his skin, 
it starts to, as the title suggests, like burn. And it can take a couple different um, sensations. Like it's painful, and there's also some pleasure to it at times. Uh, and besides that, other stuff starts happening with some of his girlfriends. Like two of his girlfriends are involved in accidents in like a relatively short time period. And this starts to draw attention from the spy agency that he's contracting for. And they start to kind of suspect that he's maybe not a spy, but he's definitely involved in some kind of counterintelligence thing, maybe even unknowingly. And uh, the story kind of progresses. It's, it's a really cool mix of a mystery, and there's some weird elements in there, and some science fiction elements. And as the events start to unfold, uh, Farmer kind of unwraps it all in a masterful way, and kind of really does a good job in revealing um, the cause of Lane's condition. Um, and I think that's just something that Farmer did remarkably well. He, um, he was really good at combining different genres together in, in a story. And I think this is one good example of, of and, that. And of course, we have reprinted Skin Burning, Rita House's latest book, if anybody's interested. Um, primarily focuses on Great Heart Silver, but there are a couple of other stories in there, and I'll talk about another one that's in that volume in a minute as well. So, thank you, Jason. Um, Chris, are you okay to, to go next? Sure. Okay. Uh, a lot of people know uh, uh, Phil Farmer had, you know, fallen in love with the works of Edgar Rice Burroughs at a young age. Uh, they really Im impressed themselves upon him. He was reading a mix of things he, he's, he's written about in various essays. He was reading mythology at the same time he was reading Edgar Rice Burroughs and, you know, the Oz books and things. And it kind of uh, worked in his subconscious, I think. And, and he, he, he saw these, these pulp characters, I think, as mythological heroes mm -hmm. um, and, and became, as Wynn said, obsessed with them. Um, and uh, uh, worked with various permutations of uh, authorized or uh, referential mm -hmm. versions of them. Uh, and uh, as many people here know, I, I worked on the Ancient Opar series. I continued that on. So that was an expression. Of course, Opar is one of the lost cities from the Tarzan novels. Um, but Phil had really wanted to do an authorized Tarzan novel for a long, long time. And finally, toward right at the end of his career, uh, in fact, the, his very last book that was published in his lifetime was Tarzan and the Dark Heart of Time. It was originally published as The Dark Heart of Time and it was re-released under his preferred title of Tarzan and the Dark Heart of Time last year by Meteor House. Yeah. This is the new edition here. Uh, proud to say that uh, we have brought it into the realm of the Edgar Rice Burroughs universe, so we're considering it actual Edgar Rice Burroughs canon. Of course, it was authorized before, but the corporation had never, Edgar Rice Burroughs Incorporated had never uh, canonized any, any works beyond Burroughs, but we're doing that now, so we're canonized this as well as Fritz Leiber's Tarzan in the, uh, in the Valley of Gold. Um, it's a very interesting book uh, set in 1918 um, during World War I, uh, during the events set between the events of 
Tarzan the Untamed and Tarzan the Terrible. Um, and uh, so Tarzan, of course, and Tarzan the Untamed, as many people know, uh, believed Jane to be dead. But by the end of that novel, he finds out that she's still alive, and he goes off and sets off to find her. But in between, he's hurled into this adventure in Tarzan and the Dark Heart of Time. Uh, Phil was obsessed also with the subject of immortality. It runs mm -hmm. throughout so many of his works. Uh, and of course, Edgar Rice Burroughs endowed Tarzan with immortality not once, but twice. In 1918, he had only undergone one immortality right. treatment by a witch doctor. Right. Um, uh, and so a millionaire uh, stumbles across this fact that Tarzan does not seem to be aging uh, and wants to get the secret of his immortality, or his longevity at least. Uh, and so that is the impetus for the plot, but it's much, much more than that. Phil Farmer, of course, was a science fiction writer, a Hugo Award-winning uh, science fiction writer. And so he uh, added, for the first time, some very science fictional elements into Tarzan. So we have, have some references to an alien culture, kind of ancient aliens that have visited the Earth in the past and interacted with various African tri uh, tribes. Interestingly, a few years ago, I was looking at... Um, I knew Phil and he visited his house. I photographed his library because I was very interested to see what he had read. And uh, one of the books that I saw there uh, after he had passed, I was looking through his library because I was just very interested. And I saw that he had a, on his shelf uh, a book called The Serious Mystery. And uh, this was kind of one of these ancient alien books that came out. It originally came out, I believe, in the maybe late 70s, early 80s. Um, but it was reprinted. After I looked it up, I looked up what edition he had there on the shelf. It was reprinted right when he was writing The Dark Heart of Time. Uh, and it, it's pretty fascinating. Once I realized that one and, and, and looked through that book and then reread The Dark Heart of Time, you can see he was working with that kind of, uh, uh, this idea that, that ancient aliens <laughs> had visited African tribes in the past. Um, and, and he inserted that into the Tarzan myth. And so, um, he, he really, he, li he liked to, to write realistically. Uh, even though he was a, a fantasy and science fiction writer, he, li he liked to think through uh, things. And so he really worked that into the cultures in, in, in this book. I think there are also subtle references to Kokarsa in it that, that, that he slipped into, Kokarsa, the ancient Opar series. Do you think? Um, yeah, I do. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, it is a fascinating uh, work, and there is an a, a ancient alien device or network or, or what have you called the crystal tree that uh, allows Tarzan, or allows the, the sort of high priestess that's very similar to she from H. Rider Haggard from this African tribe to be able to uh, see through time. And uh, Tarzan himself touches this mm -hmm. tree and is able to have visions of through time and space. And he, he again, there's a very touching scene where he revisits, uh, uh, see, he sees his mother, his ape mother, Kala. Uh, it's, it's such a touching scene, you know. And, and Phil really had such a, a feeling for the character, such a, a connection to the character that it, it's, it's such an authentic yeah. book. Yep. Uh, and that's why, you know, uh, you know officially Edgar's Burroughs Incorporated is, is very proud to incorporate it into the Edgar's Burroughs universe canon.
and Phil would have been over the moon. Oh, absolutely, you know, yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. And if I can turn to you, Gary, I think you're going to talk a little bit around Great Heart Silver. Absolutely. Um, as a technical term, um, first of all, <laughs> uh, thank you, Michael and Paul and Wynn and the good group at Philip Jose Farmer. Um, Ray Bradbury has a loyal following, but and there's probably a few others, but very few legends have the kind of legacy that, in my mind, that Mr. Farmer has. Thanks to these gentlemen and others in their group, and I'm very honored to be here. I'll tell you a couple of quick stories. Um, one is their book, and we're not shilling. That's one of those great old pulp works, shilling, right? We're not shilling the book right now, but it's a darn fine deal. You get the three Great Heart Silver stories, which originally appeared in Weird Heroes, the uh, Byron Press uh, paperback sort of pulp series. It was very neat, too short to lived as far as I was concerned. And then two other stories uh, that are very pulpy, if we can use that word. Uh, we just talked about Skinburn, which is an interesting story. The other one's called the Grant Robeson Papers. The title alone is very interesting. Phil was Mr. Farmer. I, I have trouble with these guys. I had a professor years ago. I said, Garen, Garen, call me Ray. No, 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 you're Dr. Brown. <laughs> Mr. Farmer was very intelligent man, and that, that sounds cliche, but in my brief meeting with him, and I met him on a few occasions, one at a pulp con years ago in Dayton, um, it's very clear how voraciously well-read he was, not only in pulp fiction, which he became part of himself at the end of the that particular medium during the days following World War II, but in everything from classical literature to mythology to, he was a very, very bright man, and he was a very nice man. For me, you know, I'm that, I'm that guy that, I don't care how good the actor is on the movie screen, if they're not nice, I'm not gonna watch their movie. He's a good man. And so I, I liked him for that. Michael graciously, Michael Croto in the front row here, graciously lent me last year, let's back up two years, two years ago, it was 2017. We celebrated the 100th anniversary of a friend of many of ours, the late Robert Block, who was a longtime PulpCon attendee. Well, I was fortunate to get to know Bob a little bit myself. So last year, in 2018, Michael offered me the opportunity to borrow 75 letters from Robert Block to Mr. Farmer. And Mr. Farmer, had thought enough of Bob, Mr. Block, to save all those letters, and so over the course of this last year, I've been scanning them in. Returned the originals a couple days ago to Michael. It was a real honor. Now, I've received in my lifetime a couple dozen letters from Mr. Block, especially towards the end of his life when he died in 94. But to read the relationship between Mr. Block and Mr. Farmer, you saw again just how much Mr. Farmer knew about the pulps. He was not only part of the era himself, he knew that era. And as has been documented many, many times, he, he loved Doc Savage. He loved Edgar Rice Burroughs. He liked aviation pulps. He liked adventure. He liked science fiction. 
And in those early days, sometimes he was the guest of honor at PulpCon over in Dayton. You could find Phil looking at these things. That's where I first met him years ago. It must have been about 28 years ago. I was there with my three-year-old son. Gracious man. And his, uh, his wife was an absolute sweetheart. Mm. But those stories are in their program book. They, the gentleman here graciously allowed me to recount some of those. Now Paul asked me, and I'm getting off the topic here, Professors will do that sometimes. It's okay if they bring it back to the topic. Expertly, can I ask? Yeah, yeah. You know, I love these guys. They're great. They're very tolerant, and for some goofy reason, they put me on the panel. Um, Paul asked me about Mr. Mr. Farmer's pulp background and his influences. And all you have to do is read one of his stories, and it is just full of references, and it's, they work on a couple of different levels in the Great Herd Silver Book. They, they work on a level for people, many of, of, of the people are not necessarily here anymore, or they're old like me, right, who knew those old pulps, who knew who Jimmy Dale was when he's referenced, and Frank Packard, the famous uh, Canadian-American author. Those people, including me, knew that old history, but the Great Heart Silver stories also work for a new audience, and it's kind of fun to see that mesh together, that tradition. And in his own way, and I'll quit talking now because I love this topic and it's, it's really great. In the Great Heart Silver stories, who's the Great Heart Silver, of course, is this, this uh, what, are they, what are the young people call it these days, mashup of the great, great pulp heroes. You get some really interesting, not only detailed literary history for those of us willing to remember it and look for it, you get an approach that appeals to our newer, younger generations. Thank you, Gary. I'm going to add in a couple of favorites of my own uh, to hopefully try and illustrate where I think Phil has drawn some of his influences. And the first one I'm going to talk about is Savage Shadow, which again is in here. And Aaron talked about Grant Rosen papers, but the story itself is yes, sad. Yes. sad. I'm sorry, yes. Uh, no? And it, it's an interesting concept, and I can't go into too much because it'll just get convoluted, but suffice to say, Ken Robeson is a character in a story who gets embroiled in an adventure helping uh, a gentleman and his daughter. And he's helped in this endeavour by six bums, Whatever you want to call them, down and out, alcoholics, you know, life failures. You mean somewhere like Wim? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you cared. <laughs> <laughs> and th these characters, these these bums, these down and outs, have a flash of heroism, and they help this father and daughter and Ken to to win the day. And as part of that, Ken Robeson mythologizes these, these characters and turns them into the one and the five that we know so well. And to me, that just illustrates how Phil was always looking at the pulps for inspiration, but he changed it, and he continually changed it, whether it was a direct a descendant, as in Skinburn, of a pulp character, or a, you know, a truly a pulp character in Tarzan, or as Wynne alluded to earlier, next generation of, of characters. 
Um, and I think, again, Phil twisted it in another story called Lord Tiger, um, where the premise there is that a multimillionaire or billionaire, you know, a mad multimillionaire or billionaire, wants to create his own Tarzan. So he buys an enclave in the jungle, um, he builds a tower so he can observe what's happening there, he kidnaps the children of nobility to try and generate and gestate his own lord of the jungle. Doesn't always succeed, but you know, eventually he does. And boy, when he gets that character right, we have a fantastic story, and it's one of my favourite Phil Farn stories. And I guess what I was trying to illustrate through these stories and um, the panel members and, and what they've talked about is that Phil never stopped thinking about the pulps. And he didn't just use one formula. He, he looked at how they, how they gestated themselves and how he could either take them forward or retrospectively manipulate them. And he, I just think he was always thinking and he always wanted to pay homage to that, that area of literacy and literature that he loved so much. Um, so I hope we've managed to bring some of that across. Um, and I, I want to take the panel one step further because I think Phil then topped all of that when he created his fictional biographies, Tarzan Alive and Doc Savage with Apocalyptic Life. Um, and I'm not going to go down the line, I'm hoping we just get some you know, people just to speak up and, and let's just talk about what influences that had on pulp and people who came in the wake of that. But I don't know if anybody wants to win, looks like. Yeah, so the, the two mock biographies, Tarzan Alive and its companion, Doc Savage, His Apocalyptic Life, were written, um, well, Tarzan Alive in particular was influenced by William S. Baringbold's mock biography, Sherlock Holmes of Baker Street, and it's actually modeled and structured in the, in the same way. Uh, and, and, it, and it's written straight, you know, as if Tarzan was a real person, and it kind of dissects Tarzan's life, and analyzes the Burroughs books and says, well, if, if they were, if Tarzan was a real person, which he is, you know, what, what happened? What really happened here? Could this have really happened? Could that have really happened? And, and it's, it's masterful, really. Now, he did a little bit less of that with the Doc Savage biography uh, and, and kind of actually veered a little bit more into the realm of the fantastic. Uh, and you kind of see that in the end papers for both biographies, which are uh, the Wold Newton uh, family genealogies. And to answer your question, I'm not going to go on and on about the, the family tree and the genealogies. That's not the point. Your question is, you know, how did, how did that help influence the next generation, right? So as, and I really like the way our friend Bill Maynard characterizes it many, many times. It's, he's phrased it very well. Whether you buy into this, to the game that Phil was playing or not, and the, all the genealogical connections and this vast family of connected pulperos or not, is, it's fine. Some of us like playing that game, some of us maybe don't enjoy that game. But the, the sheer number of different uh, pulp characters and, and also non-pulp characters, characters from classic literature um, that he included, opened doors 
Uh, it opened doors of, of reading for me, and I know for so many other people. I mean, I never would have in a million years, okay, maybe a million, have read, read um, um, uh, Pride and Prejudice. Uh, never. It never would have crossed my mind. But Phil included that as, you know, or those family members. And so I said, yeah, well, Phil must have seen something in that, right? There's something valuable in that that he saw, so I'm going to read it too. And, and, and so I think that, you know, that's a, and I've heard that story from so many people that, you know, it basically created their reading list, right, of their childhood. Um, what are they going to read? So that's my answer. Chris? Chris? Sure. Um, when, you, when you think about what Phil was doing, it, it, it was an extension of what some of these pulp writers were doing that he, he was interested in. Because Edgar Rice Burroughs himself inserted himself into his mm. own novels mm. and, you know, and implied that Tarzan was a real character. Yeah. Uh, he got the story from a certain person, right. changed the names and details. Phil was filling in the details. Absolutely. Uh, even if you read Doc Savage, there's a particular Doc Savage novel mm -hmm. where you get this kind of metafictional That's right. uh, uh, framework where it's like, oh, this is real. Oh, the story you're getting from the pulps is like a slightly distorted version of the real, real thing. And Doesn't Doc just, like write a letter to a magazine or yes, something like yeah, that? Yeah, 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 saying, you know, you're exaggerating my exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, so he would he he saw this in there, and like I said, he was creating. He's he kind of read mythology at a young age while he was reading these pulps, pulp characters, and a lot of other literature. And he, he created them into a mythology. And so it's only natural that he kind of took what like Edgar Rice Burroughs and Lester Dent were, were doing and, and, and doing that little cute little metafictional thing. And he, he took it way, way, Do way it. further to an extreme. Right. Um, but he did create his own, I mean, just as ERB created a pantheon of heroes mm -hmm. and heroines, uh, so, did, so did Phil Farmer. And, he, you know, and, and, and among them were ERBs. <laughs> in Lester Dents and so many other um, fictional characters in, he just incorporated them into the pantheon. And I think, think that, that was his intent? To, did, do you think he ever saw the extent of where that would be or do you think it was more organic? Well, I, or a bit of both? I would assume it began organically, mm. but I, I mean, he was smart enough, he must have known what he was doing. And, and, and as far as the influence today, I mean, Look at what's going on with all these other universes, uh, where you, where you have these like popular culture pantheons, like the Marvel universe and things like that. I mean, I I, I do think that there is some kind of interplay there, um, that there must have been some kind of influence on s at least some of the creatives who are bringing this into the popular mass culture, um, and now it's a thing, you know. Um, well, I'll, I'll just say that um, when I was first getting into the wider pulp fandom and, you know, researching stuff on the internet, um, it's, it's astounding how much Farmer's name came up. Um, he's a science fiction grandmaster, but he seems to be um, slowly over time being more and more associated with the pulp characters. And... I just that's just you know an an observation. And I think and that's something to do with what we do. Here. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, 
in in his day when he was writing, he was more better known for Riverworld right. yep. than anything. Right. Yeah. You know, and I, I wrote an article uh, a few years before he passed on, on Phil, and I kind of hit the highlights of his career, and I and I actually made a prediction that the Bold Newton thing was gonna actually bloom out and be one of that one of his main mainstays along with Riverworld. Mm -hmm. I mean, because that is a, a significant legacy mm -hmm. he left behind too. But that Walt Newton thing is equal to it now, I think, really. I agree. Lots of interesting literary and cultural references, not just literature, but film and radio and other things come up too. What, what strikes me as I'm thinking about this, and I think about the Barnstormer Oz, which is a, a really wonderful story. It is. I really like it. The Wind Whales of Ishmael, of course, the reference to, to Moby Dick. And then another very good book, and okay, maybe I'm a bit of a zealot and I, I like so much of it, maybe I need to be more discriminating, but I really like the other log of Phileas Fogg. Mm -hmm. um, I love the original uh, story, the Vern story, Around the World in 80 Days. And uh, that's really good. And as I'm looking at these kinds of things, something has kind of hit me. And I, I'm looking at the cultural context. I've heard lots of discussion. Is Bill Maynard here today? There he is. Bill's one of my many heroes, and I say that sincerely. Bill stepped into the, uh, the abyss of political correctness yesterday, and he handled it very, very well. I tried. Yes, 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 and you get it from both ends, right? Um, and as an old professor with a doctorate and that kind of stuff, I've been aware about that so much. And if uh, George gets the energy, it's typeset, I'm off on a topic, but if he does the Mr. Chang stories of A.E. Apple, there's going to be an essay from me about political correctness and cultural context. Anyway, with all of that said, Phil was born, the year was 19, was it? 1919? 1918. Yeah, 18, okay. What's going on in the world at that time? Phil's just born, so his conscience memory, unlike Ray Bradbury, who claims he remembers from when virtually he was born. Phil's born in the, the fireworks of World War I. And so much of World War I seems to pervade, and I'm thinking about that it, more and it more. Does. It does. And it's kind of neat. I had a very unfortunate situation in the classroom about 15 years ago, and I asked my class, who contemporary students probably can remember back to maybe Obama or the Bush era. I asked them, when did World War I happen? And one young lady raised her hand and said, was that in the 1950s? And so, but there's something neat about that. And it's not necessarily a technical term, but World War I and Phil, he knows about that. So when he does, and God bless Will Murray, I don't know if Will's here or not, he's been my friend for darn near 40 years. I love Will's work and his legacy with Doc Savage. One of my favorite all-time Doc Savage books is Phil's Escape from Loki. Mm. And he does the World War I theme, yeah. and you start to look at these, these influences and these yeah. pulp connections and, and the writers from the early pulps, not just the new stuff, relatively new, not just the golden age, but the the proto early Frank Packards and some of those, and that's enough for me. But uh, he, he reminds me very much, and I know I keep bringing up Bradbury because Bradbury was my my friend for 30 years and all that. He reminds me that he is one of the very best of all time, like Ray Bradbury, 
at celebrating the literary heritage that came before him. And his voracious reading of that heritage, and if I answer your question, yeah. Paul, I would say it's both organic, unconscious, uh, planned, it's all part, and it's very, again, for lack of a better word, neat. Perfect. Perfectly summed up. And I think, I think this is a matter of record that Phil said, you know, doing those works you know, took three times as long as writing a novel and pay half as much. So they were works of love. You know, he, he loved those characters and he wanted to invest that time and, and restrict his earnings at that time so that there would be those books. Am, am I right in thinking he planned a third one? Was, there, was it any thoughts of him? The Alan Quatermain biography? I, I was thinking of, of, yeah, maybe that's the one. Were there, thoughts? Well, he had also planned to write a shadow biography and, and as you said, the Alan, Alan Quatermain biography. Yeah, and, and further, furthermore, he was looking at doing a sort of anthology book that was going to uh, do multiple, right. uh, kind of have a chapter on the real life analogs, you know, the, the fictional analogs of yeah. real life, or wait, no, I got that backwards, yeah. Yeah. Uh, bunch of fictional characters. The fictional biographies, basically, in and one that book. Project? Yeah, well, I mean, we have the outline to it. It's published yeah. in Farmer File, so yeah. yeah. And one other thing that struck me is Garen, because I think earlier I said Lord Tiger is one of my favourite Phil Farmer books, but just you reading off a few titles, I think, no, that's my favourite. Yeah. No, that's my favourite. And I think, you know, depending on the time of the day or the second of the hour, that favouritism can, can change. It, it is interesting uh, what Karen said. Uh, both Escape from Loki and The Dark Heart of Time were set in 1918, and that's definitely not yeah. a coincidence, the right. year of his birth. Right. You know, so. Excellent. So I think we're probably going to wrap it up then. I'd really like to thank my fellow members on the panel for their insight and for sharing that with us all. Um, I'd like to throw it out for questions. Don. Uh, Chris mentioned uh, reading early or reading mythology as part of uh, Farmer's early uh, reading, and then his library at the end of his life, which you, you document. Um, and I'm curious, particularly because he uh, Farmer himself mentions Joseph Campbell, hero of uh, Thousand Faces in Tarzan Alive, and I'm wondering if uh, if you could pinpoint exactly when Farmer found that uh, and what he speculate on what the impact was, because Campbell not only influenced, I would say, Farmer in this case, but also George Lucas, that's mm -hmm. people in another universe as well. Yeah, I, I, I don't have an answer to exactly when he encountered him. I mean, I, I imagine it was probably around the time he was writing Tarzan Alive, because he quotes from it there. Yeah. Um, so that was published in 1972. Right. So early 70s, perhaps. Um, and uh, you know, I think it. I think it definitely had an impact on on it, on on him. You know, I'm sure it had an impact on him writing even World of Tears and things like that. Just the way that he treated. I mean, he mentioned that volume to me a couple of times when I spoke to Phil. You know, separately. So I know he thought a lot of that book. Yeah. You know, when he referred to it often. Thanks. Okay. Brings up something. I was telling a few of you that I was discovering and reading Phil Farmer's stuff 
course, some of you were born, or some of you were very small back in the very early 1970s when I was very young. One series, but there are other things I've never read by him, but there are a couple of things I bought that are, are, are stored away somewhere that I, and I never read them for some bizarre reason. I was always meaning to get to them, and I've been reading all these other things since then that you guys have been throwing at me that I've been buying from you that he wrote, and I haven't gotten back to this one series that you guys never, ever talk about that about, and that is The World of Tears. And I'm just curious about that. I love The World of Tears. I think it's better than Riverworld, personally. Same and, here. Yeah, yeah. Riverworld I, I is... I'd love yeah. to hear you guys discuss it sometime, because that's something I, I, I thought, and for some bizarre reason I've never touched, but, but you've never touched upon it in any of your discussions. And I'm just curious well, about why that was, and what you do think of it, because well, that will inspire me to go back and read it, and then I pick up things from you that I haven't seen. I might not see what you I'm should go see. read that series <laughs> right now. Right. So, so Phil actually integrated the world of tears into the Walt Newton family. So Kikaha was a Walt Newton family member related right. to Phileas Fogg. Right. In the fifth book, The Lava Light yeah. World, he, he, he basically does a little you know, retroactive continuity, if you will. Right and 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 goes back into Kikaha's genealogy and relates gene, uh, Kikaha back into the Walt Newton family. So Phil made his own character and put him in the Walt Newton family again, as Chris said, related through the the fog um, the fog line of the of the family. Mike. Yes. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, okay. and I'll come to you in a second. But it's a great idea. Yeah. I'll make a note, and we'll certainly look at that as a future panel. Yeah. Mike. Two things. One, Keith may have just given us our idea for a next year's panel. Yep. And um, uh, not to shill the book, as, as Garen said, but you somehow failed to point out that the our new book there has an introduction by Dr. Roberts that is a, uh, a deep dive on Phil, Phil's whole mid-70s cult nostalgia period. And you're absolutely right. It's a trifecta for us. Garen is on our panel in our book and in our brochure. So please do come up and pick up the brochure. It's free. It's on our table. Wonderful remembrance from, from Garen meeting Phil and Betty. Um, his introduction is, is great as well, but obviously that costs bucks. I'm just humbly honored to be associated with you guys. I mean that sincerely. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. So. Um, I was curious about something you did know, uh, Mr. Farmer. Where did he sort of uh, put his more adult books into his legacy? And by that I mean, did he, uh, did he consider them great works of literature, or was it just something that was fun for him? Yeah, so my, <laughs> yeah, and I will pass over to him because okay. he knows much more, but what I would say is What is that, that supposed to mean? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you want. Okay. He, he wasn't embarrassed about them. I think that's one of the first things I would say. You know, mm -hmm. he owned them. Mm -hmm. um, whereas many other SF writers wrote in that genre um, under pseudonyms. That's right. Phil didn't. That's you know, right. um, and there are a couple of spicy books out there, but mm -hmm. they're under his byline. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so he, he wasn't embarrassed by them. Um, I, I think he was, uh, and I've pointed, I've used it a few times, literary pragmatism or a, a narrative pragmatism. So he, he knew what people were really like, and he wanted to show that at times, and sometimes that 
moved a little bit further to the edge. I think Phil was deeply interested in exploring human nature and all aspects of human nature and, and, and people as sexual beings was just another aspect of that. So I, he, he absolutely did, and I made a joke earlier, but it was a joke, he did not write to titillate and, and some, if anything he wrote to, to make you think and make you uncomfortable perhaps um, in, in terms of exploring that, that nature. Paul's absolutely right. He was not embarrassed by it. He owned it. Uh, in fact, conversations that, that we had with Phil and with Betty in discussing the preparation of the manuscript for the Evil in Pemberley House, um, which was an, ex an explicit manuscript that we discovered and that I completed. And we were, you know, and so now we're, now we're in 2006, seven. Uh, and thinking about, you know, well, what do we do with this? Do we, do we, do we edit it? Do we change it? Uh, do we, do we leave it as is? And, and, and it was, I mean, this was, this was an intense conversation, right? <laughs> In Phil there. and Betty's house. Yeah, yeah Chris, Chris, Chris was there. It was, it was Phil, Betty, m me, and Chris sitting, talking about this seriously, what, what to do. And, and Phil was, was very, Firm that he, you know, even at that at that age, he did not view that as any kind of taint or anything like that on his legacy, and he wanted he wanted it preserved that way, and that's the way we went. You know, when, when, you, I was just going to say when uh, when he came uh, when he was hanging out with uh, you know the people coming back on the GI Bill, he hung out with a, a bunch of Bohemian hmm? types from you know in uh, uh, the. Henry Miller, uh, was it Tropic of, I get those two Tropic, Tropic, Tropic of Cancer, yeah. Yeah. Uh, was a banned book in the United States at the time. And they had co you know, illegal copies that they were circulating amongst each other. And I think that that really imprinted on, on him. And he really, uh, he wasn't afraid. He wanted to push the boundaries mm -hmm. because he saw that, that literature, that great literature being repressed. And he, just, he just had that that impulse. And I think that opened the door for other science fiction writers, mm -hmm. very much so. Mm -hmm. and Stranger in a Strange Land is dedicated to Phil and others. And mm -hmm. <coughs> yeah. Well, I was just going to say that uh, he calls out Henry Miller and uh, William S. Burroughs, which were two very explicit sexual mm -hmm. literary writers. Right. Speaking of, you know, that was my reading list for the next 10 years, was uh, from that 1975 band paperback. <coughs> He's got pulps on the one hand and then this literature. That's right. Great. Anybody else? Uh, thank you for that answer. That was very Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Oh, good question. Anybody else got anything? Or we can wrap up a few minutes early? Okay. okay. Thank you for attending. It's been great having you here. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast. Brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, for over 20 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2019.